welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Nabasa Innocent Kashabera, who is the founder of the Uganda Vegan Society and a vibrant force for the animals in Uganda. It is so inspiring to hear from African activists who are struggling in the sense of still being a small minority, but have so much potential for success in countries where factory farming has not yet fully taken hold. I'm, I'm super interested in this interview. Yeah, it, it really is a great interview. I was really, we had so much trouble setting it up and I really didn't think we were going to make it happen, but, but I finally did get a hold of her. She's doing really exciting work. She's really a, a powerhouse. And this is the second interview we've had from Uganda in, in just the past, probably the past six months. And, and it's really exciting that, you know, it just gives you that feeling. I love that feeling that I get when, I always say that people who care about animals and vegans are a, like a nation to unto ourselves, That, but we stretch all over the world. But I like to have that feeling, which I try to hang on to, actually confirmed. And it's so true. Like you speak to people in Africa or whatever part of the world who are doing this work and who care about animals and you just feel such a unity of purpose. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of? I've been doing videos for people who have been offering donations to support our hen house. And every week I have this list of uh, people that I send videos to. And like, it's amazing, Marianne. Like, I love doing this because I get to see the people all over the world who are listeners, who are, who are able to support our hen house. And I know I sound like I'm doing a commercial, but I swear I'm not. I wasn't even planning on bringing this up. But like, sometimes I'll be having a bad day and I'll be like, oh, I have to do the videos. Okay. And I'll like, look at the list and I'm immediately lifted up. And I just wish so much that, th- that other people could see l- all the locations of yeah. the folks that, are listening because we are one unit of people who care about changing the world for animals. And so that's very cool, which, which by the way, that is a reminder to me, first of all, happy new year. This is new year's Eve day. So happy new year. Yay. Happy new year, everyone. And then secondly, we are just ending. We're in the final hours of our end of year fundraising campaign. So if we make our match of $20,000, then that will be tripled. But the other two levels don't get unlocked until our general listeners, our general support reaches $20,000. So at the time that you're listening to this, if you're listening on December 31st, which obviously you are, we're not quite there yet. But uh, it's always this like last minute moment for us. And, and I think we're going to, I'm pretty sure we're going to get there, but I am not positive yet. So if you're listening to this and you want to take part, even if you just throw us like 10 bucks, that's amazing. It's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has donated. It means so much. And obviously, this is our big fundraising drive. If we don't raise the money now, it doesn't work. This is when we raise almost all of our money. Yeah, this is it. This is it. So exciting. So you sound very full of energy, but I kind of don't understand how you're still sitting up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, there's like things propping me up right now. That's You're probably referring to the fact that I woke up at 3.45 a.m. on purpose. No, excuse me, 3.40 a.m. on purpose, not by accident, because as people who listen to this regularly or read my Substack know that I am the new host at WXXI, which is the member station for NPR here in Rochester. And I'm in training, although I should be soloing within the next, by the end of January, I'm using that as a verb. And I was shadowing someone who is hosting Morning Edition today, and that just starts so early. So I was up. I don't really consider 3.40 to be early. I consider it to be late the night before. That's funny because... I was looking at our high house's Slack right before we started recording and Jocelyn, who is uh, a researcher among other things here at our high house, sent this message at like her 5.45 a.m. Or no, it was our 5.45 a.m. And that, and she's in California. And so that means she was still awake and I was already at work. <laughs> so anyway, um, but I was like, oh, how am I going to get through this? Someone brought me coffee, which was so sweet, but I don't drink coffee anymore. I do drink tea. I am still a caffeinated person. I was like, I'm going to drink the coffee anyway, because it's medicine. And then suddenly, 
NPR, the uh, national programming, puts on this story about Kwanzaa, and I'm listening, you know, kind of. Then it's suddenly about veganism and Kwanzaa. And I was like, what? And I'm like awake, you know? It was so cool. I love those little you know, those little moments so much. And it's just about, it, it was this culinary historian, Tanya Hopkins, and her sister, Kenya Parham, speaking with Rachel Martin from NPR, because they have this new seven episode series on the Food Network called The Kwanzaa Menu. And though they didn't make a very big deal about it, it's fully vegan. Isn't that cool? It's unbelievably cool. And they didn't, they they said they were deliberately not making a big deal about it. And they used both the term plant-based and and vegan. And they mentioned that that they don't want to use those labels because people have their own baggage. Really? People have baggage with those words. Who who knew? But what's interesting is the one who was vegan, I think it was Kenya, um, said to find herself as vegan, uh, not as plant-based. So I wish they had gone into it more, but the whole thing was, was, was really cool. She was saying how, how the whole idea of, of using these foods quote flips her consciousness upside down and, and talking about how soul food has a lot of foods in it that are not good for you and that are meat based and, you know, the fried chicken and whatever. And she said, who decided these are soul food? Uh, you know, and, and all of their recipes, focus on obviously foods of the African diaspora, but all the Caribbean, African, and the American South are the, the main sources. I, I have to check out this, uh, this series because I want to hear more about what they're making. And happy Kwanzaa. It is Kwanzaa through New Year's Day. So since everyone listens immediately, then it is still Kwanzaa. So happy Kwanzaa. So cool. And Hanukkah is over and Christmas is over. And and now it is New Year's, which is which is exciting. Um, but before we get to New Year's, I had a, I actually wanted to get your advice on something. Is that okay? I mean, you you would give me advice, right? I give you advice even when you don't want it. <laughs> That's true. You do. It's fairly true, and you should be very thankful because yeah. it's always good. Well, most of the time, it's good. Well, okay. So here's the advice that I've been thinking about. And, you know, I'm just starting at WXXI. I'm like, I'm, I'm all in. I'm like wanting this to be amazing. You are totally in your Jasmine. I'm, I'm completely committed to this. I'm going to take over the world mode. Well, I'm not going to take over the world, but I do get monomaniacal and excited. And like, then I get really focused and I want to, I want to do well. So anyway, there's this conversation that's come up a few times in the newsroom about journalistic integrity and how people who are too close to a particular subject, they are welcome to pitch stories about that subject, but they can't cover it themselves. Like, you know, if someone, this isn't the case, but as an example, if someone like, you know, had a trans kid and that kid was, you know, maybe struggling at school, especially around like bathroom issues, if there was then a story about, let's say, legislation around, uh, you know, gender-free bathrooms, then the parent of that kid who's the journalist cannot cover it. However, they could pitch it and someone else could cover it. And I think that makes sense. However, it stops making sense when I think of animal rights stories and vegan stories. And I guess what I'm concerned about that I'd love your advice on is like, what do I do if this comes up? for me? Like, what if I'm not able to cover the stories that, that like, I want to cover that are related to veganism and animal rights? Even with the trans issue, I, I think these are really difficult, difficult issues because it has to do with a lot to do with majority culture and minority culture. And if you're in the minority, you just, you're, you're kind of seen as biased towards a minority point of view. Uh, just because it's not everybody's point of view, but uh, like if if there was a story on on barbecue restaurants, uh, then would a meat eater uh, who pitched that story not be supposed to cover it because their their viewpoint would be tainted with their enthusiasm for barbecue? You know, no, <laughs> it wouldn't. I'm, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, it's it's really definitely a a problem of being seen as a minority. You're, you're automatically seen as biased. Whereas when it comes to food, everybody's biased. Everybody eats and everybody eats stuff. And, and some people don't eat certain things. And that doesn't make them... It's not that it doesn't make them biased. It does make you biased. It does mean you're biased. But so is everybody else. People are either biased 
toward meat eating or against meat eating? Like what if there was a story on, on dog eating? people who like to eat dogs, I bet they would not, well, they probably wouldn't cover it at all, but they, they might, and they wouldn't let somebody who eats dogs cover that because it's kind of the opposite situation. It's like, they're the minority. Whoever's the minority isn't allowed to, to cover a situation, which makes it really, really hard to become not the minority anymore. Oh, I, that's a very good point. That last point you made is a very good point. I think on the, on the sunny side, uh, at least I could make sure these stories are getting covered. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying that anybody's going to cover them in a hostile way. I'm just saying the, the point of view yeah. is uh, that that people who have a stake in an issue shouldn't cover it is kind of kind of weird, especially when everybody has a stake in food. And it's funny because my initial instinct when you're saying that is, oh, it's different. <laughs> but like, I have to check myself on why I think it's different because it's not. I mean, it, it is, but it's not ultimately. It, you make a very good point. So I don't know if that was really advice or just insight. My insight is almost always as good as my advice. So whatever, you're good. I think, I kind of think that you know, I have my friend Beth is a senior editor at Yahoo. I have written for Yahoo with her as the as my amazing editor. And I think it's like she as a vegan tries to get vegan stories in as much as she can in whatever way she can. And I just think maybe that's kind of what what's happening here. I'm like in this like quote unquote progressive environment. And I and I am aware I definitely more vegan stories and more animal rights stories are going to be covered as a result of my working there. I want to be clear. I think that's great. And I don't think there's a huge problem here, but I think there is something of a problem or at least something to be aware of. That's what I meant. But it's great to get a vegan story covered, especially if it's in a non-hostile way. And I doubt this any of these will be covered in a hostile way unless, you know, unless some vegan starts murdering people and they cover that. But but I'm digressing. Okay. So let's let's move on, but I will keep you posted. Probably. Yes, I will keep you posted because I want your advice and your insight. And thank you. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that it's New Year's and I sort of want to ask you if you have any resolutions, but I also sort of don't because I recognize that it's a very annoying question. So like, should I ask you or should I not ask you? I feel like every year I make the same resolutions, which is really not a good sign of my keeping to them. It almost always, they run the gamut. Some are very specific. I have not sat down and done resolutions. I guess if I'm going to do that, I should do it soon. Uh, it usually has a lot to do with anxiety, <laughs> like, like uh, not letting myself be such a victim of anxiety. I don't think I've pulled that off yet, but maybe I've gotten better. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not very good at resolutions. And if you're going to make resolutions, they don't have to be on January 1st. They can be any time you want. Very good point. I have a friend who always gets a planner and like loves the planner. And she got a new planner, but it always lasts for like one or maybe two months. And yeah. and so she's like, so she's like, I'm getting my planner now that I'm going to use for my next one or two months. But like the goal is always to use it for the year. And yet, because she gets something out of using it for the one or two months, maybe it sets her up for the year even. I mean, it must serve her in some way because she keeps doing it. So yeah, anything that makes your life a little easier or more organized. Yeah, organization. Maybe I should get a planner. Maybe that's what I should do. Can I ask you something? But you said just now it's serving her in some way because she keeps doing it. So is that the case for your anxiety? Or am I like being your armchair therapist right now? Because I can stop. Oh, yeah, that's a point. Well, I'm not, I it probably, like, I think thinking about addressing anxiety is a good thing to do. And I think it probably does serve me. It's not like I ever achieve the goal of, of I know there are people who don't, feel anxiety. I, I've been told that. I assume they're not lying. But like, what cuts them up in the morning? I don't know. What, what, I don't even understand functioning as a human with, without it coming from anxiety. I, they must just be wonderful people who, who just want to do the right thing in life and have goals. And like, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I think that it, it does exist. I think other things get people up in the morning besides anxiety. But I do, I understand what you're saying. I had this funny thought just now that like, after you die, you're going to be like going into rigor mortis and you'll be like, see, anxiety. So that's a really funny thought. <laughs> no, okay, it's not funny. <laughs> but right, I, miss, I missed the punchline. What was it? Like, is that sort of a type of anxiety? Like you're, you're tensing up and it's like, it's just, it, it never ends. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But in any case, I do think there are things besides anxiety that wake people up 
that get them out of bed in the morning. Like maybe, maybe, maybe it is what you would categorize as anxiety, but for the other person, it's excitement or like they sit actually anxiety and excitement sit in your body. Similarly. I've heard that so many times. And whenever I feel anxious, I try to tell myself, well, think of it as excitement. And I say to myself back, what are you stupid? (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, You're cracking me up. So, do you want to hear what mine is? I don't have one either, but I was thinking while you were saying that. So, all right, this is going to sound weird, but like, despite how I am sure that I sometimes come across, I, I'm not always confident, even though I do have confidence. I have a lot of confidence, but then there's certain situations where I'm like petrified. I mean, I think that's the case for most people. So I'm going to start to think of uh, the word leadership differently now. And it's not to say that I want to be a leader. It's to say that if I start to think of myself in a leadership way, I don't necessarily need to like just create confidence, but I could sort of be like, how would leadership Jasmine react or respond in this moment? Does that make sense? You like that? Yeah, I like that. No, I I like it because especially, I mean, thinking of thinking of it in as leadership, you also, it creates an obligation to other people. This idea that, that you could be of help to other people if you do this, uh, if you do it and you do it well and, and which is, you know, what leadership is. And so rather than just saying it's all about me, I want to be confident. I want to be this. I want to be that. I want to look like that. Like it's, it's other focused. Exactly. And that's like, remember I went to LA like a couple of weeks ago and that was something, cause I was like, Ugh, I have to travel and it's like, yeah, I want to go, but I also like really want to stay home and focus on WXXI. And I also like want to be with my animals and, and also I don't, I'm nervous and, uh, but then I thought of leadership and like, maybe I can be helpful to people while I'm there while also getting help from others. So it's a two way street. And so that is, I don't know if it's a resolution so much as like a focus for me that I want to have. You can do resolutions that way. Like list a few words that you find inspirational. They don't have to be like, I commit to do X, Y, Z. I think Gretchen Rubin does that on the happy, the yeah, happiness yeah. podcast. I used to listen to that podcast. Yeah, me too. I haven't listened in years. I haven't either, but I always got a lot out of it. It was like the happier, I think it was the happier project or something, but we can link to it in the show notes. So if, in case people are, li- well, I mean, after you listen to our house, you can listen to that. I will allow it after you listen to all 600 and whatever episodes. I mean, I'm kidding. Not really. Yes, I am. Okay. Let's get to the interview with Nabasa. Nabasa Innocent Keshabera is the founder of Uganda Vegan Society and Africa Regional Coordinator of ProVeg International. Uganda Vegan Society is a volunteer non-governmental or organization that advocates for reduced animal consumption, healthy eating habits, compassion toward animals, and environmental conservation. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Nabasa. Greetings from Uganda. It is a pleasure to be speaking to you. And Let's just start off with talking a little bit about the vegan scene in Uganda, which I know nothing about. And how common is veganism there? Veganism is really not common here. In uh, Most people are looking at it as uh, an initiative from the West. So actually people are more, more easily understand vegetarian than veganism. So when you talk about being vegan and veganism, you'll need to explain a little bit further for anyone to understand what exactly you are talking about. So do people tend to think of meat as being a really healthy addition to the diet and really connected to prosperity, something that you aspire to? And is, is that a, does that make veganism a tough sell? Growing up, like most of us, 
the, the vegan meals, the vegetables and the legumes are for the poor because they are easily and readily affordable. So, for example, like personally, where I grew up, um, it was until I was around uh, 20 years that I had moved to a city that I realized that we could actually buy food. So all I'm trying to say is that most of the vegan meals here in Uganda can grow almost in every part of the country because we have fertile soils. So it's easy to find beans, find groundnuts, find peas, find potatoes, cassava, yams, pumpkins, like name it all. Almost everything we have it. Now, the farmers are the poor. Uh, I'm sorry to say, but like the farmers mainly are the poor communities. Farming is actually still not industrialized as much. So it means it's the food that is affordable. So when there's prosperity, when there is uh, wealth, so many people tend to shift now to eating more meat because meat is quite expensive, chicken and all that. So when you tell the poor who are actually the majority that you need to go vegan, they will not understand. It's more like, are you mocking us? We have eaten all this food our whole lives when we were poor. And now that we have money, you want us to go back to eat? So indeed, just like it is in other African countries, it's like they don't get it. But then interestingly, now the rich are now also trying to shift going vegan because now the rich have eaten poorly uh, because of uh, uh, they can afford the meats, the burgers and all that. So now they're trying to avoid the non-communicable diseases also because they are exposed to knowledge. So they understand for them to live better, they may choose to go vegan. And now it so happens that when you go to the urban centers, like the cities or the five-star hotels, now these same legumes and vegetables and crops are quite a bit expensive, you know. So there's that fall imbalance between the rich and the poor and who is vegan. The poor, some of them are vegan, not by choice, because they cannot afford the meat and, you know, the other foods. But then the, the rich now have a choice to choose what to eat. This is such an interesting uh, moment in time and phenomenon that you have all of these competing forces that people have traditionally eaten probably what is an extremely healthy vegan diet, and yet they have aspired to eating what was probably came in as a more Western diet originally that's more meat-centered. And yet, <laughs> on the other end, people who have been eating this meat-centered diet and can afford to and have more money are now sh perhaps starting to shift back to a healthier... It's just fascinating. You're in the middle of not just a cultural shift, but almost a cultural shift in reverse. So what are some of the health issues? You mentioned that a lot of Ugandans in the particularly wealthier areas and in the cities, are thinking of plant-based diet because of health issues. What are some of the health issues confronting Ugandans related to their diet? Yeah, now some of the uh, health issues that are uh, happening right here in Uganda is like a hypertension. Annually, over 100,000 Ugandans uh, suffer from uh, this uh, die from non-communicable diseases. And uh, this is uh, almost like 35% of the total annual death. So this is a big number. And not everyone has this data. And now this is more common in uh, in the urban centers because of most of these uh, diseases, that is like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, colon cancer, uh, arthritis, uh, among others, are, are related to consumption of animal products. So it is, it is on rare occasions that you'd find... 50, 60 and above uh, old Ugandan not dealing with hypertension or diabetes, you know, and all those other non and arthritis and all that. So because of continued sensitization, now the rich that I can afford are trying to make that shift in their diet. Yeah, that's really interesting because you actually see the same thing in, in here in the U.S. of people of African descent have particularly high problems with hypertension and, and some of these diet-related diseases. So it all seems to make total sense. Another thing that you mentioned that I thought was so interesting is that now it can be expensive to get the foods. <laughs> when you're in the city, it can be expensive to get the healthy vegan foods that are actually grown by the poor in the countryside. I mean, for people who aren't actually wealthy, just living in the city, but is that a big obstacle to having a healthier diet that, that the food is expensive? Yes, it is a really, really big obstacle because now in the city, there are no farms. Farming in Uganda has really not been commercialized as much. So in the city, there are no farms because of ex uh, increased uh, human settlements, increased population. Now the farming has gone in, you know, 
up country, I could say. Like, uh, for example, now I'm in the central, but most of the food that we consume in central Uganda, where the capital city is, comes from western and southern Uganda. You know, now there is a whole shift in, you know, transportation. There's a shift in value addition, transportation, um, access to markets and all that. So sometimes by the food time, the food moves from southern Uganda or southwestern Uganda to Mpala, some of the, for the perishables, meaning they've already gone. But the few that have managed to get here, they're going to be expensive. You get and and transport costs are really high here in Uganda because we don't have trains. So usually, basically, they use trucks to move from different parts of the country. In fact, if 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 you traveled on Ugandan highways like at midnight, three a.m., you'd only along on the highways you'd find trucks with food, you know, coming to the city, and they offload at around you know in the in the markets, open markets around four a.m., five a.m., and six a.m., and that's when the purchases now to the supermarkets and the the retail shops start. And now it means the people now at around uh, 7 a.m. and later in the day will have to walk into retail shops and supermarkets. So sometimes the price is like four times, you know. It's like four times more what it costs in their countryside. Oh, this seems like a, that's a terrible problem and seems like something that really needs to be addressed. Here you are growing all of this healthy food and, and people may want it and can't, can't afford it. And, and animal foods can be so expensive to produce. What, one food I'm curious about in particular is dairy. I think I read that dairy is, is increasingly popular in the Ugandan diet and, and, and which seems like such a shame because it's so bad for you, uh, are dairy replacements available? And am I right that dairy is, is increasingly popular? Dairy is indeed very, very popular. I could say maybe it's getting increasingly popular like in, the, in, in like central Uganda. But, it, uh, but like in southwestern Uganda and western Uganda, like dairy is part of, of, of the diet. Like every breakfast, there is a cup of milk. Industrial animal agriculture is really not so common here. It is now that government is trying to introduce it due to increased population. So because of that, now government is trying to see how, like in the central, because like I said, there's that whole cost of transportation and, and transporting dairy from up country up to Kampala. Sometimes it goes bad because it's perishable. They don't have refrigerators and all that. So now government's trying to promote uh, industrial agriculture, which unfortunately is bad for the animals because now promotes cruelty animals in, in, you know, in small space. Now, that's where the instance of growing animal feed comes in. But like in the countryside, animals are grazing on acres and acres of land because there is enough land, you know. And there is, of course, there is less cruelty compared to that now, compared to the uh, animal agriculture, industrialized animal agriculture, the government is trying to, you know, to introduce because they, the government desires to start now importing milk even to the neighboring countries because, in the region, basically, like in East Africa, it's uh, Uganda and Rwanda that uh, uh, graze more cattle. So the the government wants to expand that trade, which is unfortunate. I also talked about alternatives. Alternatives aren't as much like dairy alternatives, like uh, soy milk. Like most of the soy milk you find on the supermarket shelves is imported. The same thing with almond. The same thing with coconut. Like they are all imported into the country. For example, like. Soya bean. Soya bean is widely grown in, uh, in in the countryside, not for the animals, but for human consumption. So meaning if there was deliberate effort, there would be an easy dairy replacement from soya bean. Coconut is also available in some parts of the country, but also in our neighboring country, Kenya. So if there was also a deliberate effort to produce coconut milk, it would be, you know, affordable. But then there isn't much sensitization on the dangers of uh, of dairy as much as we know because I'll give an example of our president he has been on record several times telling us about his dad you know he's like he doesn't get sick so he, his dad doesn't have milk he basically says he consumes cassava and beans on a daily basis and if he's gonna change his diet he'll probably eat beef like once in a month, you know, like once in a while, and that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. So he says, indeed, a promoter of healthy eating, and and he's talking about how he's managed, you know, to live healthy and all that. But then on the other hand, he's done promoting industrial agriculture so that there is increased consumption of milk. So it's, you know, it's like a bit of conflicting. 
But I think now that calls on stakeholders, civil society, activists and advocates like me to ensure that there is increased sensitization on the disadvantages of, uh, of dairy, both to human health, to the environment and to the animals because it promotes cruelty. And also to promote and also invest in uh, production and accessibility of other dairy alternatives. It does seem like there are enormous opportunities available to you. Do you think Uganda and Africa in general have a kind of a special role to play here in that though factory farming has certainly started, it is not as entrenched as it is here in the U.S. or in Europe. And perhaps it's a lot easier to change something before it happens than, than after it's really entrenched. Do you think this is a moment of big opportunity for you? It is an opportunity, but unfortunately, there isn't much funding that is coming here. Uh, like you said, uh, as much as it is better to address the problem before it becomes bigger than it is, unfortunately, most of the funds now are saturated in the West, where there's a, a lot of intense animal farming, where the problem is already happening. But now with increased, you know, animal welfare and animal advocacy organizations, now the West is starting to invest in, in Africa, for example, we've had like different organizations coming from different countries in the West wanting you know, to, in, to invest in dairy farms here in Africa so they can import the milk directed to, to the West. You understand? So we lack a lot of sensitization. Now, I would compare this with climate change. Like, you know, the West is the biggest contributor and Africa is contributing less. But no, not much funds are in, uh, have been invested in Africa, you know, to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So it is more or less like a time bomb because if like, for example, here in Uganda, if like 95% um, of the population are cooking using either charcoal or firewood. So that means more trees are being cut and more carbon emission. So that's the same thing that I could say is happening with uh, this whole shift with animal welfare and animal advocacy organization. Even when they try to invest in, in Africa, the funds are little. It's $1,000, it's $5,000, it's uh, $10,000. Of course, there are a few organizations that can go up to $50,000 or $100,000, but the majority, it's $1,000 to, you know, to like $10,000. And that cannot do much because now the West are like, oh, there's a green light in Africa. We can still do this in Africa. So they are coming here. For example, like cages. Um, Battery cages have not been a practice here in Africa or even here in Uganda. The hens have been into free range and then later they introduced the deep litter, but free, free range has been the common practice. But now because they, there's a lot of criticism on battery cages, now they are being dumped into Africa. There was a poultry summit, uh, I think, uh, a few months ago in Rwanda and uh, most of the exhibitions had, of course, battery cages and they're being exhibited by mainly companies from Germany. Ugandans, we don't make battery cages. Africans are not making battery cages. And now government is investing in that. Government is promoting that. You know, that if you want to have produce more, to make more profit, you better adapt to battery cages. So there is need for increased investment here in Africa before it is too late. And then we are also like the West and we're starting to address the problem when we can address the cause in time. That's very compelling and obviously really, really true. Uh, I mean, of course, there's the problem that the industry has much, much more money than, than the advocacy organizations, but still it does seem like Africa needs to be a huge priority just because of what you said about you have to get ahead of the problem yeah. before it occurs. So what is it like to be a farmed animal activist in, in Uganda? Is it a lonely, it is a lonely business? <laughs> well, like I said, it's more or less like a lonely business. Many think it's uh, an import from the West. They think it's not part of our culture. They think, uh, no, animals have been, you know, here for, for eating. God has given us the animals for eating. So it is hard to tell people about, you know, animal rights. Uh, many think animals don't have any rights. Who cares about animals anyway? At the end of the day, they're going to end up in a slaughterhouse, you know. But also one thing with my time in the whole animal advocacy, you know, one thing I have realized is that we actually have a special relationship with these domesticated animals. Told in the West, they refer them as farmed animals. For us, we call them domestic animals, but I'm going to use farmed animals since it's the common term. So the cows and the goats. So for example, I'm going to give like, I talk a lot about the West and the Southwest because uh, that's where most farming takes place because that's where the fertile lands and uh, soils are. So talk about like in the West. So in the West, you'll find like in seven in 10 households, they have 
cows or goats uh, at home, like it is part of us. Now, because we have lived with these animals, like even me as a person, we have developed a special relationship. If you found us in our cows conversing, the cows listen to us because now cows are being grazed on uh, huge chunks of land. You wake up in the morning, you take them to farm A, and then they eat freely, they graze freely. And then you, uh, in the afternoon, you take them to the pond uh, to, to drink water. And then after that, you take them to, you know, to another farm. After that, then you have to again, you know, take them to the farm where they spend the night. So you see like this whole, that whole relationship. Basically, grazing cattle is, uh, is an activity that happens the whole day. You get it. So at the end of the day, you bond with these animals. So there is already an existing special relationship with these animals. So it, it won't be a hard paper to tell people about reducing, you know, consumption. Telling them that you know you're 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 promoting cruelty when you deny a calf an opportunity, you know, to breastfeed because you want the mother's milk. You know, someone can easily think through it because what happens? I have seen it myself. Like early morning, the cows are mowing, like they are crying because they want to feed their little ones. But humans will not let them feed them because. We want to first get the milk and then the balance goes to the calves. So if you explain someone that and create empathetic thoughts and all that, means the transition could be easy. For example, still again in my culture where I come from, like with grazing cows. So if you say, I don't drink milk, be like, are you fine? Indeed, they'll go ahead to get you medication for being lactose intolerant. So it's, uh, it's still unheard of you know, to be vegan, but then there is a starting point because people already have that special bond. I like in, in like in the West where these cows are in industrial farms, here they live with us. In the morning, you'll hear the cows mowing and you know, oh, it's 5 a.m., it's 4 a.m., you get it, it's 3 a.m. And when you hear the cow mowing at 3 a.m., then you'd know there's a problem, probably, probably there's a thief in the farm because they usually do it at 5 a.m. So there's that whole relationship and bondage that already exists, which I think we need to know to stamp and, you know, make people understand that you've, you've been bonding with this cow for the last five, 10 years or one year. So why do you want to kill it? And there are cultures, in fact, where they don't even sell their cows. Like there's a culture called like the, the Banyang, part of the Banyankole culture. To be a cattle keeper, it's more like prestige. So one, they usually have to be considered one. You must have between 500 to 1000 herds of cattle. So meaning by owned by basically one person and people that love cattle to that extent, they don't even slaughter. They let the cow die and bury it. So you can see the relationship already exists, but unknowingly, like it's still unknowingly not intentional. So we need to make it intentional. Yeah, that is fascinating. I mean, there's so much food for thought there. And one thing that really, really struck me is which is obviously going to be the case that people are going to say, oh, veganism, that's something that comes from the West. But when you look at the West, I mean, our treatment of animals is horrifying. Like, it's, it's not like it's not like the West are all these like hippies who are like being kind to, to all of these animals. That's not that's not our culture. Yeah, there's a few people in the West, a few who are vegan, but. It so saddens me to to think that, uh, you know, people think that that's foreign to them when obviously, as you're pointing out, so many people in Uganda have have actually deeper relationships with animals than, than most of us in the West. Tell us a little bit about yourself, like your own story, because obviously you're not the common story in Uganda. You're telling us that most people don't have these feelings about animals, don't have these feelings about veganism, but here you are, you do. So, and you grew up in the countryside, you said. How did this all happen? I grew up in the countryside. So meaning I have grown up witnessing this animal cruelty. Uh, and like growing up, like in the morning, you're going to the farm to check on the cows. They're interacting with you. They are letting you touch them. The same thing with the goats, the same thing with the sheep, the same thing with the, with the hens. So I developed such a special relationship. One of the things that one of my friends actually got surprised about is if I told them that for us, it's not that whoever wants to slaughter a cow or a goat or a chicken must go to a slaughterhouse. No, you can do it at your home and take the meat to the market. So meaning it actually even happens. So yes, we have regulated slaughterhouses, but not respected as much. Like now the festive season is coming. Almost every village will be, every village, there will be, will be slaughtering, you know, cows at home and people just come, you know, say, uh, 
uh, home B, they've slaughtered, let's go buy meat and it's going to be at uh, cheaper prices and all that. So many, many of the people have grown up from, they've been exposed to that. But me, a person, I haven't been exposed, you know, to the scenario where a cow is being cut or a goat because my conscience doesn't let me. But I've heard them scream for help when they're being slaughtered. But what I've really witnessed is the, the hens. Now, the hands is that uh, because as women, we are the ones that, that are tasked to cook at home. So it means if you are going to cook, you'll have to slaughter the hen live. It's rare to buy, you know, chicken in, in a supermarket. Yes, it is there because, like I said, it's now that, you know, factory farms are coming up and all that. But initially, like you just walk to your farm and just, you know, in your hen house and probably just pick out one. So one of my tasks was to always do that. And I felt bad because typically the hen is alive. You're just, you know, holding it by the neck and cutting it. And whenever I would hesitate, they would tell me, you know, you're a coward. You're going to be married. And how are you going to do this? How are you going to cook, you know, chicken for your husband? So to me, that was really like a turning point. I was like, no, I cannot do this anymore. And sometimes when it would be my turn to cook, I would, you know, try to avoid it. But of course, as African parents, you know, you had to be spanked later in the evening for not doing what you're supposed to do, for being a coward. But when time reached and when I could make my personal decisions, I was like, no, I have grown up like witness this whole animal suffering. I shouldn't be the one, you know, facilitating it or promoting it. I first, of course, made the decision myself to change. And then also I decided to think okay, it, is, it is not enough for me to make that adjustment in my diet. But how about I get into activism and, you know, let people know about better treatment of animals and the kind of pain that these animals go through, you know. That's an extraordinary story. I mean, so so many people go through what you went through and just become enculturated and just adopt the practices and put it aside. And you didn't. The other thing I want to talk to you about is, is some of the activism you're doing. And I noticed there are a number of different aspects to your activism, but I noticed that Africa Vegan Restaurant Week is coming up very soon, I think in January. Can you tell us about that? Because it sounds really cool. Yeah, it sounds really cool. And importantly, I am the coordinator of the Africa Vegan Restaurant Week. So it's going to be the first of its kind. Yeah, it's going to happen from 23rd to 29th of January, uh, 2023. It's going to happen remotely in different African countries. So different African countries will participate, but then we're going to have a joint online campaign using like the same hashtags and all that. And we already have uh, 20 organizations that have expressed participation. We've put up a website, Africa Vegan Restaurant Week. Restaurants are registering. Um, organizations in Africa are also registering and they're going to be participating. Even people, when they want to turn vegan, they find it expensive, which is sadly it is not. Now, because the word vegan, like I said, has more or less like been imported. So here people is like vegetarian, someone probably no vegetarian and all that. So now uh, imported, I now it means that mainly it's the foreign nationals that actually do understand the term. So it means if I walked into a fast foods restaurant and they say, where's your vegan menu? You mostly find that foods that are not even indigenous to Uganda, indigenous to Africa. I have tried eating in vegan restaurants. We don't have predominantly vegan restaurants, but they are vegetarian and they are those that have vegan options. I look at the vegan menu, they're not indigenous. So meaning someone as me who is indigenous to Uganda, I will not enjoy the meal because you, you're going to find more like tofu, you'll find there the green beans, you'll find like most of the products you'll find are imported or they're not indigenous to us. As much as they're good alternatives, Personally, I've tried introducing some of these alternatives to Ugandans and they're like, but I don't like this because some people are like, but if I don't want meat, why should I find an alternative to meat? It means I don't want meat. Like, that's it. So we're trying to show that, you know, you can still be in the, an indigenous Uganda and eat vegan because like I said, like beans, like beans are like the most affordable food here in Uganda. Ground nuts are the most affordable Potatoes are the most affordable. Cassava, uh, bananas, yams, pumpkin, peas. But then most, they're not ready available on these menus. Now, the foods that are already available on some of these menus are really, really expensive. So making the, the middle income people and the young people and the rural people that want to go vegan are going to find it expensive. And some people, like, when you tell them, like, no, but even the beans you're eating are vegan, like, Oh, also that's vegan? Like, yes, there's no animal product in it. 
So basically, we want to have a showcase of the vegan foods that are available in the African market. If I am in Uganda, what are the vegan options? Indeed, you can find them everywhere. You don't need to walk into, you know, an uptown restaurant. The same thing is going to happen in Rwanda, in Kenya. So it's basically a showcase of the available vegan foods, vegan products, vegan ingredients, and also having like different chefs, you know, try to introduce different ways of cooking because sometimes the normal of cooking can get boring. So introduce the unique and different ways and all that. And also have like experts talk about why it's important to be vegan for the health, for the animals, for the environment and all that. So it's a whole collective action as Africans actually try to show that veganism is indigenous to us. And if you're an indigenous African, you can still find options. But then also for Africans know that if they travel to different African countries, here is the restaurant to go to to find the different vegan options that you would want. I love this project. Like as we've been talking about through the interview, this weird disconnect between the traditional diet in, in Uganda that so many people eat that's basically vegan yeah. and what people think vegan means and, and the idea that people would think vegan means something from the West that's expensive and imported is just such a shame. The fact that you're highlighting all of these this is what has to happen. It has to happen. I mean, in Africa, it, like in so many countries, yeah. not just not just where you are. I, I see the same thing from activists in South America. You know, so many traditional foods are beans and, you know, and corn. And the same situation implies that meat has been adopted into the diet. And it's the meat that's the import. That's the colonial diet. That's that's the diet that has come from the West. It's not the vegan. Well, anyway, I'm going on and on because I just find this very, <laughs> very exciting. Is this a project of Vegan Society Uganda? And tell us a little bit about what else Vegan Society Uganda does. I know that's an organization that you head up. The Africa Vegan Restaurant Week is not a project of uh, Uganda Vegan Society. It is a project of Proveg International, if you've heard of Proveg. Of course, yes. It is a project of Proveg. And it so happens I am the Africa Regional Coordinator for Proveg. So I am coordinating the, the program as well. So as Uganda Vegan Society, we're also going to participate as Uganda Vegan Society. So telling you more about the work we do as Uganda Vegan Society, basically uh, for us is uh, one, we like organize uh, annual festivals, uh, potlucks, and also teaching people how to make affordable vegan meals at home. Like if I want a milk alternative, how am I going to get it? Oh, they just walk into a retail shop or a supermarket, buy your soya beans, and you can do it at home and, and enjoy your soy milk. Because we've been drinking soya milk, but we've been drinking it as porridge. But this time we could actually drink it as milk. So our role is also saying if you go walk into a market and buy coconut, how can you make, you know, coconut milk at home? If you're a lover of tofu, you can still make it at home. So, and also sensitization, like, uh, you know, that change information, why it's important. Because here people care more in reality. They care more about their health and they care about animals. Like that's the reality. That's the reality absolutely everywhere. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I've had an experience with, I mean, not everyone, but you have to go in with the health message. Fortunately, not eating animals happens to be good for your health. I'm sorry, I interrupted yes, you. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And that's the message we are putting out there. So if you just come and say, no, you're going to go vegan for the animals, like for the animals, but if tell them for the health, be like, oh, my health? And now someone will give you an ear. So that's some of the message that, we want to put out there or we put out there as a Uganda Vegan Society and also letting the people know where the vegan restaurants are. And I find that the health message for many people, once they stop getting uh, having the meat in their diet and they, they go vegan because of their health, not everybody, but some of them do start to look around at what's happening to animals and seeing that it's it's horrible. We're devastating all of our land. We're devastating all of these living creatures. What we're making of the world is a horror. I sometimes say it's like people need to get the meat out of their ears in order to hear that message. Uh, first, they have to stop eating the meat for their own health. And then they recognize it's not just about them. So I think that's extremely powerful work. I'm so, we had a little trouble putting together this interview. I'm so glad we finally managed to, to touch base. About I'm glad. It's really fascinating what you're doing. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is really a doozy. It's from the UK. I actually find it a little shocking. It's so ridiculous. This is from The Telegraph, and it's by one Hannah Boland. Free-range egg rules could be torn up over fears EU farmers will get unfair advantage. All right, so the implication you get from the title is that they're having trouble having hens being free-range, and therefore, they're not going to sell eggs as free-range anymore. That is not what they're going to do. All right, this has to do with bird flu, of course. And apparently, the hens uh, have to be kept in who have been free range, which in both the UK and the EU mean that they have to be uh, that they have a grace period of sixteen weeks. They can be they can still be labeled as free range if there is a government issued housing order for birds and it's in place for up to sixteen weeks. But under the rules that if it's more than sixteen weeks, no, they're not free range anymore. They can't be labeled free range. And so this means that bird flu is a big problem because they, everybody in both in the EU and the UK have been having to keep their hens inside because they're all getting sick and dying. The, the extent to which the world is in complete denial about bird flu r- remains shocking, but that's not what I'm talking about today. So the EU decided to rip up its own rules and, and say, no, this doesn't apply anymore. And in response, and none of this has happened yet, so maybe it won't. But in response, the UK is going to be doing the same thing and, and what they, would, they want to do, where temporary restrictions have been imposed on the basis of EU legislation. Eggs may be marketed as free range, notwithstanding that restriction that's in the EU. The UK wants to do the same. And that means that they will continue to label their... <laughs> this is the part that makes me nuts. They will continue to be able to label the eggs free range, even though they're throwing the rule out because of bird flu, as if the birds like suddenly don't know the difference between free range and barn raised just because there's bird flu. In the- no, if there's bird flu and you can't raise your hens outside, at least part of the time, then you have to like change your labels. Isn't that easier? changing the law, just change your labels. You know, and I think one of the reasons is, is that, which is kind of a hopeful thought, that once people get used to seeing that they're uh, buying buying free range, you know, whatever that means, it means more in, in the UK and e- the EU to, than it does in the States where it means close to nothing. You know, going backwards might seem pretty harsh to them. Like they, there's something distasteful about that. People have decided this is the thing to do. And a According to this article, 70% of the eggs sold in British supermarkets are free range. I mean, whatever free range means anymore. Uh, and we will see. Because as I said, this is a proposal. Boy, they, the rules don't mean much, do they? I mean, we know that. But geez, that's crazy. All right. This is from our second, second article is from Plant Based News. Our friends over there. And uh, don't do this in front of my children. We ask the public if a loving Christmas is vegan. I love this story. <laughs> So, plant-based news uh, believes that the holiday season um, should be happy and wholesome. And with this in mind, according to this article, plant-based news founder Klaus Mitchell took to the streets of London to ask the UK public this question. Is a loving Christmas a vegan Christmas? Don't you just love him? (laughs) I love people who do things like this. I'm such a timid person. And there was a mixed response. A number of people said, said yeah, absolutely. And even people who weren't vegan, um, you know, agreed with that. Some said, absolutely not. But my favorite was that another one said, when asked why uh, they didn't think it was, um, because I like meat. And added, I think when that turkey gets roasted in that oven nice and warm, he'll be absolutely fine. Like whatever the hell that means. Don't do this in front of my children, please. That's the line that kills me. That is the line that kills me. Like, if you can't explain it to your children why it's perfectly loving to have turkey on Christmas, then 
you know, maybe you shouldn't be, or maybe you should at least not be lying to them. Uh, another popular response, of course, was that it was tradition. And, uh, you know, who cares whether it's tradition? <laughs> like, like slavery is a tradition in a lot of societies, including uh, ours. Uh, we got rid of that one. All right. Our third story is another st- It's another good news story. I did this last week. I, I told you about two bills that passed in New York and were signed by the governor. And I'm repeating it this week because although a lot of you may have heard of this, if some of you haven't, I want you to hear about it. President Biden signs bill outlawing private ownership of big cats. And this bill has been bouncing around for a long time. But, you know, it really got a new life because of Tiger King, which was a few years ago itself. But Tiger King gave a black eye to these exhibitors and uh, roadside zoos. And they finally managed to pass this. And, and it passed Congress and the president has signed it. And it would prevent unlicensed people from owning, breeding and transporting animals and bans those licensed exhibitors from allowing the public to touch the animals or hold cubs. And most of the licensed exhibitors would be zoos and sanctuaries. So hopefully this will really crack down on these horrible, horrible exhibitors, as we saw in in Tiger King. And the animals covered under the bill are species of lion, tiger, leopard, cheetah, jaguar, cougar, and hybrids of these cats. You know, like, it is hard to believe that in this day and age... This is still a big thing, but it is a big thing. And any anything that will stop this just horrible treatment of these animals is 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 good news. One of the reasons they were able to pass it, of course, is because it's incredibly dangerous to humans. Uh, apparently, in the last two decades, there have been more than 400 dangerous incidents involving big cats. And under the new law, owners of the big cats have 180 days to register their animals with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Let's hope they do a good job at that. And people who fail to do so face a fine of up to $20,000 or five years in prison. Not clear whether that's per animal. Uh, You know, that would be good to know. Yay. (laughs) A law passed. It's seldom we get laws that pass uh, for, for animals and get signed into law. When they do, they're always just shockingly small. Like, this is the best we can do. But it's really good news because the law is the last thing to change. It really means that society is changing when we are able to get things like this passed, even in this fractured political situation. So a little good news for the new year. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. That's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. 
If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.